All right, welcome into the lawyer you know. We've got Pete Sardis here with me today to talk through Elizabeth Holmes. He has been bringing you through this case week by week. So we're going to do something a little different during today's video. It's why we're doing it live so that we can answer the questions you have live um, about this trial. Not a ton has happened since our last update, but Pete is going to tell us what has happened. He is going to give us an update, bring us up to date as to where we are. I'm going to go through some of the questions that I've been asked about this trial to get Pete's input on them um, and talk through some of the things that are in people's head about why are they arguing about this? Why is the schedule like this? So we'll talk through a little bit of that. And then at the end, once we've gone through our spiels, we will get to the questions in the chat. So any question you have about this case, get into the chat, post the question there. I'll put it up on the screen and we will answer it the best that we can. So Pete, why don't you tell us what's happened in the last week in this Theranos trial? All right. Not a lot has happened uh, in front of the jury, but a, a lot of interesting things have happened. Just to do a really quick recap, last time we left last week, Dr. Rosendorf, he was the lab director at Theranos. He finished his testimony six total days on the stand. One of those days uh, was direct examination by the, the government. The remaining days was all cross-examination uh, by the defense. You know, I don't know if his his testimony was as impactful as I think that the prosecution wanted it to be. But I'll tell you what is really impactful. Things are happening. Um, we had another juror this last week tell the judge she cannot be fair and impartial. Her argument was that she's Buddhist and her religious beliefs ultimately affect her ability to reach a verdict because her faith apparently uh, is about compassion, love, and forgiveness. And she can't, you know, sit in judgment of somebody else. And she was very anxious about the possibility of having to send Elizabeth Holmes to prison. Uh, the judge tried to rehab her, but ultimately the, the government and the defense agreed to go ahead and strike her. So the judge brings in one of the alternate jurors. And that alternate juror is like, uh, hey, just so you know, English is not my first language. I'm not 100% sure if I should be the one to participate in this trial. And her next comments were really interesting to me. She says that she looks at Elizabeth Holmes and she's so young and, you know, maybe she made a mistake, you know, and I'm trying to make a decision based on her future. Uh, and the judge had to rehab the potential juror to say, hey, these are the rules. If I tell you what the jury instructions are, can you be fair and impartial? Ultimately, that juror did say yes. So we've got that alternate on the jury. But I think it says a lot because at this point, the jury is starting to be at least demonstrate that they're being swayed by Elizabeth Holmes and who she is as a person. Other than that. So, so yeah, one no. of the things about the jurors real quick, um, the we've already gone through three alternate jurors. We have two months in this trial left. There are only three more jurors. So why don't you tell everybody what happens if we run through all the alternate jurors and then juror number 12, the last one that's left, has to be uh, excused for some reason. What happens then? Yeah. Unless the parties have agreed to allow a jury panel of less than 12, which I will tell you is very rare. I mean, I've never done it in 20 years. I don't think we've ever seen it. But unless that happens, it's a mistrial. And they have to try this entire case all over again, pick a new jury, and do the entire show from start. So, and the reason that it's not usually agreed upon is one of the sides feels like they're losing and they don't want to take the chance, especially if you have a wealthy defendant like this, they do not want to go to prison. They will take their chance at another trial unless they feel really strongly that they're going to win. So it is possible to get less than 12. If we go down to 11 or 10, they can agree. I think the, the limit though, they, I, what is it? It has to be six. I think, I, I, I don't know. There is a limit at some point I think that you can agree to constitutionally, but I'm not sure what it is. But yeah, you can agree to go below 12. So that'll be interesting if they end up doing something like that. And what's also interesting is in Vordire, when we pick juries in this case, this type of a case, federal court, big boy court, as we call it, when you're talking about jurors that have English as a second language, that is very common. And for the sure. most part, these questions are fleshed out in jury uh, in Vordire. So why do you think this juror got picked as an alternate if English was their second language? Now, English being a second language usually is not a big uh, problem in our country. That's for a ton of people, and they do perfectly fine. But she's saying, I don't think I can understand this process because there's some complex medical and legal terms being thrown around. So that's understandable. But this was all known in jury selection. Why don't you think that she was excused prior to this? 
Well, I think, first of all, if the defense probably made a, a, a big deal about it because you cannot exclude somebody because they don't speak English fluently, at that point, if you've got a good juror, what you do is you bring a translator for them. But I think she probably said, or he or she probably said initially, it is a female, by the way, that she was okay um, and understood what the lawyers were saying and understood the judge. But now maybe, you know, now that you're five weeks into this trial, maybe the technical terms are she's not comfortable with it. Or, you know, they put these big financial spreadsheets on and they're talking about things that I think she feels are escaping her. But let's be clear, that's not the problem here because she doesn't say to the judge, English is my second language. I don't understand what's happening here. I'm lost. What she's saying is I'm worried because I feel really bad about the defendant. And I don't know if I should really be here. So we're not sure. And the judge obviously vetted that person with some questions. This may be the point where people are getting tired of being on this jury. uh, And they're looking for reasons to not be on this jury. And I think there's a little bit of that playing here with this particular alternate that's now actually on this jury. All right. What else has happened? Other than that, we've had a couple of witnesses. Um, I got to be honest, yeah, I don't think these these people are as I don't want to say important, but as major witnesses as some of the people we've had earlier, and what I think is coming in the future. But uh, we had the former CEO of Safeway Grocery Stores talk about his name was Stephen Bird, and his basic gist was: Look, we worked a deal with Theranos to put Edison machines into our grocery store. It's kind of like the same way as Walgreens had done. It was somewhere between an 85 to $400 million deal. Safely was going to have to invest $30 million to be able to put these Edison machines inside of their stores. Uh, And the part that he testified to, which I think is what the jury, excuse me, what the prosecutors are really trying to focus on is in normal negotiations in these big corporations, and they happen often, there is whoever's negotiating the deal and then a team of lawyers behind those individuals. And those team of lawyers are always consulted in order to finalize what the agreement is going to be. This testimony, Mr. Bird's testimony was that this is the first time in however many years he's been a CEO and has been negotiating these big deals. There was not a team of lawyers sitting next to or behind Elizabeth Holmes. She from his perspective, appeared to be dealing with Safeway by herself and negotiating this deal by herself. From his perspective, he had his attorneys, his legal team, they spent hundreds of hours of due diligence trying to you know, figure out how to make this joint venture work. Ultimately, it never happened. In 2015, they abandoned it uh, because he says they were frustrated because they were not able to really get confirmation that the Edison machine was working and that they could do this thing. And interestingly enough, they did the exact same thing that I think a lot of the companies that were vetting deals did. They put their own personal, uh, their people inside of their company and they did a finger prick and they, um, you know, and they tried to test their blood and they realized that the results were not good. So there was a lot of conversation between um, Safeway and Theranos through Elizabeth Holmes specifically about whether or not this was going to work. On cross-examination, something um, that the defense did touch on was at some point, Safeway stock price was like $19 a share. And kind of during this time period, that stock price went from $19 a share to $14 a share. So the question was, hey, Mr. You know, former Safeway CEO, do you think there was a little bit of pressure to get this deal done? Because if Safeway could have gotten Edison machines up and running, Obviously, it would have affected their stock price. His answer was probably yes, it would have made a a big difference in our stock price. So the question, I think the inference was, were you pushing to get this thing done because you knew at the back end it was going to really be a good thing for your company? We'll see how that plays out in the long run. Yeah, and I think that a lot of this stuff um, with the stock prices and how a lot of this happened, like she negotiated this deal without anybody else. Some of it may seem irrelevant, but a big question in this case is who is in control? Who is the head of the snake that they're trying to cut off basically, right? Is it her, you know, ex Balwani? Is it Rosendorf who we've heard a lot of, and he was kind of running the labs. She's seems like they're, her lawyers are kind of pointing the finger at him. Or was it Elizabeth Holmes? That's the big question. So when you when you see Mattis and you see this person and you see Rosendorf all say, 
she was the queen. She was the one doing everything. Everyone answered to her. She was so charismatic. She was the head of the snake. That's why they're doing it. They're trying to prove she was in control because one of her defenses is it was Sonny. He put the pressure on me. I was just, it was poor little old me. I was ignorant. I didn't know what was going on. I was just a good face and salesperson. That's all I was doing. I didn't know any of the science. They were lying to me too. So one of the big questions is who is in control? That's why they're focusing on stories like, you know, almost like legend type stories of this billion dollar deal that she negotiated herself without lawyers. It's so unusual. Nobody does that. That's why those types of things are relevant, I think. And that's why they bring them into a trial like this. Now, the fact that she's vegan and had a weird, you know, food choice that people would restock, I have no idea what the relevance is of that. But sometimes stuff like that comes into trial. What else we got? Uh, the other thing is, and this has not yet developed all the way, uh, Wade uh, McQuillan is the former finance chief for Walgreens. He's, he took the stand Tuesday afternoon. Uh, by the time we're doing this live, he hasn't actually finished his testimony, so I don't actually know what's going on yet. But the 10-cent version is this. He's the former financial chief uh, for Walgreens. He is the actual person that cut the deal with Theranos back in 2013, which was supposed to put the Edison machine inside of all the Walgreens stores. And, and if you remember, and we did this on a couple a couple episodes back, apparently the machines failed. The testing that they did internally, the results weren't coming out to the point where Walgreens pulls the plug and invalidated all of the testing that they had produced on that Edison machine uh, company-wide. Only one about, I think, 90 stores, if I'm not mistaken, actually had one of these in it. But regardless, they invalidated all that stuff. I think he's going to be a crucial witness. I think the prosecution thinks he's cr a crucial witness because the he's the actual guy sitting across the table from Elizabeth Holmes trying to put this together. So he's going to, I think, testify for us, similar to what the CEO of uh, Safeway told us, that she's the one that's actually making the deals, or from his perspective, she is the one that he's communicating directly with, and there's nobody else but her communicating back. But we'll see how so, that goes the next couple days. So one of the big things about this is you're you're a guy that can tell a good story, right? Something we always talk about. And a lot of times there can be embellishments in the story that make it funnier, that make it larger than life, right? That's something that's funny. It's something a lot of people do. Well, it's also commonplace in um, Silicon Valley. Right, where I've got this new startup, I'm groundbreaking, I can do something nobody else can do. That is a story that is told every single day to investors to try to get them to invest money. We see it if you watch Shark Tank, you see them talk about the stuff where some of the sharks are like, that's impossible, I don't think you can actually do that, you've got to prove it to me. Should other startups in tech or biomedical stuff that, that are trying to be groundbreaking, right? should they be afraid when they see a trial like this, because if you listen to the opening statements um, done by Holmes's lawyers, they talk about, she did not intend to do this. She was trying to be groundbreaking. She was pushing this device. She was trying to provide medical care for people who could not afford it, either they were poor or did not have insurance. So if she could create this machine that allowed a cheap way basically for them to test for these serious diseases, she could save lives. That was her goal. That's what she wants to do. Now, Along the way, maybe it snowballed, maybe she got some bad advice, whatever may have happened, maybe she embellished a little bit. How do you think it's going to affect Silicon Valley as a whole? And do you think it's going to slow it down at all? Because as we know, when looking at this, there are billions of dollars at stake. I think this is going, this trial could fundamentally change the way Silicon Valley works. It can also fundamentally change the way venture capital uh, is invested in this country. Now, if this goes well and she's found not guilty of all charges, I think it's going to bolster Silicon Valley's fake it till you make it mentality. And they're just going to go out there and say, look, we are, you know, we're not going to get indicted if our statements aren't a hundred percent true, or if we got a little stretch here and there. On the other hand, if she is uh, convicted of fraud, I think Silicon Valley and all of these big investment firms are going to take a step back and say, hold on a second. We may have to do more due diligence to the point where if you're saying it works, you got to prove to me that it works, not just in concept, but in physicality. And I think that's going to be a big deal. A lot of these companies, especially tech companies and um, these types of ventures, I don't think that the, 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 the technology works the way it's supposed to work day one. I think that's why you need the investment. It works in concept, but you need that money to kind of vet it out and clean it up and get it to work the way it works. Tesla is a perfect example. 
here's a company that for 20 years didn't make a profit. And you know, the cars weren't working they were supposed the way they were supposed to be working for a long time. And now they're spot on. So it takes time to do this stuff. We'll see. But I'll tell you, every eye in Silicon Valley, every eye in uh, in venture capital, all these big these big banks that 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 put these deals together are eyes on. So yeah, and I think that this could also have other effects where startups that go bad or stuff you invest in doesn't work well everybody's going to be looking to point the finger to fraud. This is not the first time investors have thought they've been defrauded out of their money when somebody comes with a groundbreaking idea and it doesn't work out. But there's a big difference between your idea not working out or not being profitable or like Tesla where where it wasn't profitable at first or maybe this is not like Tesla, but people don't want your product or you're not filling a gap in the market like you thought you would and like you told investors you would. But that is not fraud. So when people talk about, and in this, this defense lawyer that says in the opening statements, she's a good person. She wanted to help people. That's what her heart was. Some people could say that's irrelevant. Why does he get to argue that? That has nothing to do with this criminal case. You're not supposed to have sympathy. Some of the jurors are saying that they have sympathy for her based on her age and based on the fact that they think she's a good person, but that is relevant, right? That is relevant to fraud and wire, uh, wire fraud charges. Why is that? Why is it relevant? Intent is the key to this whole thing. Did you intend to commit fraud? Did you purposely provide misinformation knowingly with the intent of having other people act based on your information? And that's what a fraud case is. It's not the machine didn't work. It's, oh crap, I know it doesn't work, but I've got to tell them that it works so that I can keep the machine you know, uh, no pun intended, keep the thing moving forward. So, and here we go, straight from the indictment. Count one, conspiracy to commit wire fraud against doctors and Theranos patients. Elizabeth Holmes knowingly and intentionally conspired and agreed together with Balwani and with each other to commit wire fraud knowingly and intentionally. That's very important. That's in count one. That's in count two. That's in count three. Then when we get to the wire fraud charges that um, uh, th that are the additional charges, it talks about for the purpose of executing a material scheme and artifice to defraud doctors and patients and for obtaining money and property from patients, doctors, and insurance companies by means of materially false and fraudulent pretenses, representations, promises and material omissions with a duty to disclose. That's why that's so important. She had to knowingly and intentionally cause this fraud. She had to make materially false representations that she knew were false. Okay. It's not the same thing. If somebody says, yes, this is right. And somebody else is giving her doctored reports saying, look, they're all working great. Go sell it, Elizabeth, go sell it, go sell it. That's different. She is not defrauding people. She's not intentionally and knowingly doing this. She's not making materially false statements. Now, we don't know if that's the case, but we can think like prosecutors and we can think like defense lawyers. So sitting here with our defense lawyer hat on, those are the arguments, right? I mean, those are the arguments that she didn't know about this fraud. She didn't intend to do this. She didn't make materially false statements. What have you seen in the testimony so far that the defense lawyers try to use to show that? The biggest tool at this point the defense has is to look at the particular witnesses the government's putting on there and try to chip away and create reasonable doubt. And here's what I mean by chip away. They put this witness on the stand. He, he runs a lab. But wait a minute. Haven't you been in trouble before for you know, not having something go right in your labs? Isn't your license at, at risk? Meaning, and again, the illusion is, well, I shouldn't say the illusion, uh, the point being Maybe you did something and didn't tell Elizabeth Holmes all of the details. Same thing with all the technicians. Well, this wasn't working and that wasn't working. Well, didn't you report to this person who was supposed to design a way to make sure that this was working right? Bit by bit, little by little, witness by witness, produce reasonable doubt. Was it reasonable that Elizabeth Holmes acted the way that she did based on the information that was provided to her, based on what she was told? based on you know what 
you know, what the people below her were supposed to be doing. And that's what they're doing. It's little by little. They haven't had any major, like, uh, the biggest one really is their lab technician. That's the one that's really, I think, fallen flat for the government and has done a good job of the defense developing how bad of a person he is. For example, the fact that he didn't disclose a company that was under indictment on his resume and even the government didn't know about it until cross-examination because they hadn't put two and two together, that's kind of a big deal. Right. And talk about how when we talk about what's relevant and what information should come out that makes sense, and we're talking about fraud, it's fraud to make money, basically, that and to illegally and do all this stuff to make money. So why are they getting into how the patients felt when they got these wrong results and what it did to these patients and doctors getting into that feeling and sympathy? Would you object to that as a defense lawyer? How do you think it's being used in this case? For sure, I would object to it and realize a lot of the stuff that you see in the news is stuff that hasn't actually made it in front of a jury. So the court has kept out, for example, on the patients, the emotional reaction to being given a wrong blood result that led you to believe that your pregnancy was not viable. The judge let the witness testify to, I got a blood result and it said my pregnancy was not viable. I went back to my doctor. We did other blood work that came back totally different. I have a baby. He didn't let her testify to her, the emotional distress. Um, but you have to understand that there are two counts that are just for conspiracy, for conspiring against each other. The rest of the counts are substantive counts, meaning that it's a specific count against the doctor, uh, for fraud against the doctors, for fraud against the patients, for fraud against the investors. And that's why those counts are broken down individually. Um, I, I think that what you're going to see is that emotion is going to be the defendant's uh, Achilles heel. If the jury feels bad for all the people that were involved outside of Theranos, she's sunk. If the jury feels bad for her, the defense can pull this off. And there are literally jury instructions that say, do not let sympathy for either side come into play here, right? And this right. is why, because they don't follow the law. Um, okay, do a little differentiation for me because I know we've had cases like this, right? Where the results do matter and the way the person feels after they're given incorrect results do matter in civil cases because damages are an element of that civil cause of action. So talk a little bit about the difference because we've had that, the wrong test results case where somebody thinks they have cancer or an STD and it affects their marriage and they get a divorce. That all is relevant to a civil case, but not to a fraud case when we're talking about money here. Right. And understand the civil case is a different burden and there have been civil cases and those have pretty much been resolved at this point. The the emotion is part of your damages in a civil case, um, especially if, it, you're, if you're filing a claim for emotional distress. On the criminal side, it's it's a little more, um, what's the word? Uh, it's cold in a, federal, in a criminal case. It, that emotion is not supposed to be part of the decision-making for whether or not Elizabeth Holmes knew uh, and intentionally, willfully made misrepresentations in order to induce people to either use the machine, uh, invest in the company, whatever the case may be. So yeah, on the civil side, emotion is a big part of it because it's part of your damages. On the criminal side, the damages are going to be the economics. What money was lost, uh, you know, what uh, investments were made that otherwise would not have been made. There's no other way to, you know, to really quantify damages in this criminal case because it's not a murder trial. It's not about whether somebody lost their life or not. They haven't charged any of that. Right, and I think people are often confused or wonder why prosecutors charge what they charge, but they charge the most severe crime that they think they can prove and convict, right? That's right. what they're looking at. Um, okay. So I've seen some articles about how some weeks there's only two days of trial or three days of trial. Let's talk a little bit about the federal trial schedule versus state trials, right? When we start federal court, it's 9.30 in the morning, we take a break at lunch around 11.30, we come back at 1.30, stop at 4, no court on Fridays, at least here. Every federal court's a little bit different. But talk about the difference between federal court schedule versus what we do in state court where we show up so early and grind till the midnight hour, basically. Yeah. State court, because of the volume of cases, is just set up differently. Uh, in, in the state courts, normally you'll either have a division that handles their own caseload 
and their trials. And most of the time, there's a trial all the time. So you just start and that judge wants to get that trial done as quickly as possible to get that case off the docket, get the jury excused and start the next trial. Some state courts even have trial divisions where the the, the individual uh, divisions of the court send all their trials over to that special division just for trials. And they go one after the other. And it's brutal. But let's be real. We've, we've done these trials where you're there at 10 o'clock at night waiting for a verdict. Federal court is not that place. It is very genteel. Every federal court judge, because they were appointed by Congress for life, is the king or queen of their own fiefdom. And they can make decisions how they want. But understand, federal court practice is a lot more complex normally than state court practice. So the judges have days blocked off. For example, in this case, I believe the judges blocked off Mondays and Fridays to be able to do other business, whether it's other cases, other motions, and arraignments and other matters totally unrelated to this case. And then that judge has pretty much given Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday to these lawyers to try their case. Now, they may not be putting evidence in front of a jury on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. They may need to reserve some of that time for arguments because, again, the jury doesn't see a lot of the stuff that happens in the background, the motion practice, the motions in limine that we've talked about to limit testimony. And that stuff might be happening during those days, those trial days, and the jury's not physically there. So federal court... Judges playing that game the way they want to play it, they have no leader. They run it the way they want to run it, and that's just the way it's going to be. And most of the longest trials we've had are in federal court. Those are most of the multi-week or multi-month trials we have are in federal court. State court, if you can't get it done in five days, then a lot of times it's really hard to get a two-week docket. Federal court, they're usually month-long dockets, um, and that's why. All right, we are going to get to some questions here. So if you haven't put your question in the chat, now is a good time to do that. I'm going to start up at the top and we'll work our way down. Any super chat questions will get priority. Um, Let's talk here with Cal, who's asked a few questions. The number one question on my mind, what if Elizabeth Holmes runs away and flees to a non-extradition country overnight? How does that work if if a criminal defendant does leave in the middle of trial? Listen, it's happened before. People, we actually, we, we had a case years ago where the defendants just disappeared overnight and the judge continued the trial with three empty seats or four empty seats where the defendants were seated. The reality is this, she's on bond uh, and in federal court for the most part, you don't actually have to post money, but you, you have to give some assurances that you're going to show up. If you were to hop on a private plane, for example, and go to some non-extradition country, well, I mean, it's, is it possible that it could be done? Yes, but that wouldn't stop this trial. The trial would continue. She'd probably get convicted. The prosecution would then throw on additional charges on top of her for fleeing, absconding, and all of those things, uh, which would definitely affect her potential sentence. Um, And the reality is we talk about fleeing to non-extradition countries. That's not as easy as people think because we're used to a a way of life here in this country. And when you talk about non-extradition countries, um, you're either going to be in a place where you're not, the living conditions are not good. Venezuela is not where she wants to spend the rest of her life. They also don't care about tech companies or uh, medical uh, devices or anything like that in most of those countries. So I should have said this before we started the questions as the transition in. If you have not subscribed to our channel already, please go hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any Elizabeth Holmes updates. We still have two months left of these updates. And check out some of our other videos and the other cases that we are breaking down. Let us know if there are other cases you want us to break down. Make sure you like this video if you're here for the Holmes case, and we'll keep bringing content, maybe even more than one a week. If you like lives, let us know in the comment if you prefer lives versus the static videos or a mix. We can't always do lives because of our schedule, but if you guys like it, we'll try to do more of them. Um, Comment cap, Pete, we've gotten this question a ton. So why don't you just hit it real quick? Um, Why are there no, why is there no live coverage of the trial? Yeah, that's a great question. Federal courts preclude any recording of anything happening inside the courthouse, which is why in, in the, some previous episodes, we talked about the, uh, the people that come in actually are the sketch artists that draw the pictures that you see of the trial. In federal court, you cannot record, no video, no audio. There is no other record except for the official court reporter that is employed by the court. No one else can come in, for example, and put a court reporter in and transcribe the proceedings. You are stuck with pencil, paper, and that's it. 
And that's why I think the coverage is so limited because it's so difficult uh, to capture this testimony because, A, you can't just put our tape recorder out there and walk away. You can't videotape it. The judge is not reserving seats for anybody. So unless you show up there and you get into the courthouse, you're not going to be able to have a story. Yeah. And lawyers have to file motions sometimes just to bring their phones or computers or iPads in there. All right. Van Wynn, if there's a deal, what do you think the minimum sentence the prosecutors would accept? What is a, what is a, talk a little bit about what a typical sentence would be in a case like this, but because it's high profile, what do you think would actually have to happen to get it done? Because we've had a lot of cases where they say it's max or it's max, and then yeah. you just go to trial. And that's very normal in federal courts. It's if you want to plead, these are the terms. You basically are giving up the world and we'll give you a sentence, what we feel is fair. Uh, the statutory max on these is 20 years. I think that the chances of Elizabeth Holmes making a deal mid-trial are probably slim. Has it happened before? Absolutely, it's happened before. Uh, but she's probably looking at five years in prison. I would be shocked if the government would agree to anything less than five years in prison. It may be more like 10 because in the sentencing guideline, which is the book that the federal courts use to determine what a reasonable sentence is for a specific offense, the loss amount um, of it, the loss amount is something that is taken into consideration. Well, you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars of investment here. She scores off the chart. So the chances are her, her sentencing guidelines score is probably very close to the statutory max of 20 years. So I, I can't see them. I can't see them offering five. Like I, I don't I don't see any world in which they offer five, um, especially because the amount of money and attention and making an example out of her and things like that. Um, all right. Preeti. Will Sonny Balwani be brought to the stand as a witness in Elizabeth Holmes's trial? Okay. I doubt it. Technically, can he be called as a witness? Absolutely. But because he's a defendant in this case, because he's a, he's a co-conspirator, uh, he has a Fifth Amendment right, and the government isn't going to call him to put him up there for him to take the Fifth on every question, meaning our Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Uh, the defense can't compel him to testify uh, and violate his his uh, you know his um, Fifth Amendment rights. So chances of him actually showing up at this trial slim to zero. Yeah, because he would just take the fifth. Um, unless, why don't you talk a little? Hold on a second. Unless, of course, the government gives him immunity, at which point it's on. At that point, though, he's pled. He's made a deal. And that's the only way I could see a five-year type of sentence coming out of this for either one of them if they're willing to testify against the other. It sounds like Elizabeth Holmes is willing to testify against him. I don't think that deal was offered to her um, because I think the government – what do you think? Watching this trial, do you think the government thinks she is the head of the snake, he is yeah. the head of the snake, or both of them? What do you think? No, I think if you look at the indictment, in federal cases, the indictment has the order of culpability. So when you look at Elizabeth Holmes and Sonny Balwani, those names aren't there just randomly. They're there purposely, which is the way the government believes these two individuals fall into the uh, into the hierarchy. Elizabeth Holmes is first. So she's, they believe, the head of the snake. And Sonny Balwani is right there, close second. That's the government's uh, representation. Another question from Preeti here. What about the, the destruction of the SQL database containing the quality test results? Isn't that destruction of data illegal? Will that come into this trial, do you think? Um, it's already come into this trial. Uh, the, the fact that the data no longer exists is already out there, which is why they needed to put some of these witnesses that, that basically copied some of these emails and data for their own purposes because they thought they were going to have everybody pointing the finger at them. That's why those people are important in this trial. The fact that the database uh, was destroyed is it illegal? Only if the documents and the database were under subpoena and there was an order to, to maintain and preserve. If the destruction of the data happened the way that has been represented, which was it was part of our uh, normal, course of business. Plan and normal course of business and we, we destroyed it, you know, you can't stop what's, you don't, you're not obligated to keep everything at, 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 you know, for eternity unless the government tells you you have to keep it. And they can make inferences that, oh, they destroyed this. If we could have only seen all the damning evidence that was on it, they can make those kind of arguments if the judge allows them. 
Uh, let's listen to Melastasi here. Everybody like the video. Uh, okay, so Barbara, we answered this. The trial is not on TV. All right, here's a good question from Feed Your Head. Will the jury be shown all the press interviews where Elizabeth claims technical expertise and to be the inventor of this device? I believe that you are going to see a lot of that stuff and you're going to see it uh, and it's going to be presented as it's hearsay technically, but these are statements of the defendant, which is a specific exclusion to our hearsay rules. Hearsay being uh, an out of court statement that is offered to show that it is true. Uh, and for our purposes, I think there's a lot of video out there that Elizabeth Holmes goes up there and, you know, sells the world on Edison and Theranos. Um, I think you're going to see it. I think you're going to see a lot of it. And I think that the defense is going to be in, a, in a, a scramble to try to demonstrate that a lot of that stuff was not said for the truth, but it was more for entertainment purposes or it was generalities. That's going to be their defense, but I think you're going to see it. So two, two points I have on that. Point number one, if you follow the R. Kelly trial or some of these other trials, it's been done for us too with our criminal defendants, especially if they don't take the stand and they have the defendant talking from the defendant's mouth, that goes a long way with the jury because they don't get to see him on the stand. So if they actually hear the defendant's voice saying things, it has a big impact. And a lot of times public media videos and things that are recorded of the defendant being played can be a huge piece of evidence in a case, especially if the defendant doesn't testify. Point number two is a question for you. Knowing somebody who's a pharmaceutical sales rep who has a certain education and she is able to speak intelligently about what she sells, right? That's not what Elizabeth Holmes was, but I think there is a parallel there. She wasn't just some saleswoman, right? She had some knowledge about this. And I think that's what's important about these interviews. So talk a little bit about how it's not the same thing as a marketing rep talking about a widget. Right. There are SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, and FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. They have rules about what you can and can't say, which is why in the U.S., when you see a commercial about any pharmaceutical, it has all the list of possible side effects, you know, that could potentially happen and see your doctor and this is not advice. All of that happens because of the rules that the federal government imposes on this industry. I think the, the issue is when you're a salesperson and you go out there and you're just selling your widget. That's one thing. And sometimes salespeople are expected to kind of embellish a little bit, but this is the person who is touting themselves as the developer of this technology. And she has gone out there and she has poignantly said, this is what it does. This is how it works. We don't use third-party software. Uh, we, we do all of our testing in-house and we get valid results. Those are huge statements because from a perspective of FDA, those are, uh, promises that you have to be able to substantiate before you can say them. And in fact, in the pharmaceutical world, you'll see that in the training for a lot of the pharmaceutical sales representatives, the company will actually limit what you're allowed to say on certain topics and make those sales reps provide the phone number to certain specialists in the company that are allowed to talk about certain topics. Same thing with the SEC. If you remember uh, General Mattis, when he was going to go on, um, on the record with a New Yorker and he said, you know, what am I not allowed to talk about? Don't talk about the topic of, of uh, you know, our Edison machine uh, does all the tests by itself. Well, I wouldn't do it anyway because I don't know anything about it, but wouldn't that be what you want to tell? And that's why he was questioning it, not because he was going to testify to it or speak about it, but because from the company's perspective, that material is exactly what they had told all the investors and all of the, you know, the people outside of the company to get them to buy into this. All right, let's see Pura Vida. Does Elizabeth Holmes have any witnesses to testify that she was abused by Balwani, doctors, documents? How important is this to her defense? So they haven't started their defense's case in chief yet, but what do you expect? Do you expect right. some evidence to come out of that? The judge has already allowed the defense, if they want, to be able to elicit testimony from a medical doctor to talk about, and I'll just call it battered spouse, battered girlfriend, battered significant other syndrome, and how Elizabeth Holmes' uh, conduct falls into that. The question is, will they put on defense? You're not obligated to put on defense as a defendant. You can just sit there and twiddle your thumbs because it's the government's burden to prove a case. 
But I'll tell you, I think in this case, they're going to put on a defense. I can't tell you who they're all going to put up. They have witnesses. There's a humongous witness list that lists doctors, investors, um, you know, media personalities, journalists, all on the defense witness list. So Pungai Fungi has a couple comments here. I can't put it on the page because there's some profanity in it, but I'll read it. Um, first off, they said, if you plea, you get a guaranteed jail time, but it's usually shorter. If you go to trial, you get a chance of being acquitted. But once you're found guilty, they'll throw you in the slammer for a long time for court costs uh, of convicting her. Okay. That's a true statement. I'm assuming this is a non-lawyer, Pete. So let's educate, educate the non-lawyers on if that's how legally it's supposed to be. Realistically and practically, that is what happens. Sometimes you are punished for executing your constitutional right to a trial by jury. But is that legally how it's supposed to be? No, you are supposed to have the right to trial by jury and that execution of that right, the fact you choose to do it is not supposed to be held against you. Except you can get credit for not executing your right for trial. And in federal court, there's actually a, in the sentencing guideline, there's acceptance of responsibility is an entire section of how you can reduce your sentence. So you accept responsibility for something, meaning I plead guilty, I don't make you go to trial, I save the government the expense, they reduce your sentence just because you did it. Yeah, um, and they don't call that, they don't call that not going to trial. They call that acceptance of responsibility, right? right? Because you shouldn't get credit for not going to trial, even though you do, and it's really unfair in the process. And one of the things we have some TED Talks on in our office and argue about we should have a right to go to trial and see what a jury says, as opposed to pleading to something that you didn't do. You know, if you feel that way as a defendant, but sometimes the risk is just too great. Just like Pungai Fungai said, if you go to trial and you lose, you will get hammered for that most of the time. And it's really unfair in my opinion. All right, Lucia, 330 watching only 50 likes. Can we increase the number of likes for our real lawyers here? Yeah. Can we increase that number up? Um, all right. Brooke Green, does the fact that two jurors say they could couldn't convict Elizabeth. Give any clues into how the jury is swaying or what the verdict could be. And let me add to this question. Do the other jurors know why those jurors were excluded or dismissed? Yeah. So number one, no, the other jurors do not know what's going on. They know that something is up because the juror that was excluded indicated that she was having issues. Uh, but that whole discussion about why you have issues, can you be fair and impartial, doesn't happen in the hearing of the other jurors because you don't want to take the whole jury. But I think what you're seeing is uh, something that's, a, that's normal. Uh, I think jurors, they're told in the jury instruction that they're not supposed to make a decision about the case until the conclusion of all the evidence. They're told they're not supposed to talk about the evidence until the case is concluded. But you know they do. Um, and I think that some people are talking right now and some of the things that the jury is starting to feel are some emotions, whether it's emotions for the defendant or emotions for the, the, the victims is person by person. But, you know, you're seeing at this point, two uh, jurors, one's gone and one's in that both have expressed that emotion of tending to be pro-defense more so than pro-government. So again, somebody's pointing out in the chat that they kind of have a difference of opinion, which I think that's what I love about this channel, right? We're lawyers. We think about it like lawyers. They're not. So they're more likely to be a jury on this trial than we are. And they said they think, based on what the jurors that were dismissed said, they thought it was going to be a guilty verdict and they didn't feel in their conscience like they could vote guilty. Therefore, they had to get off meaning they were leaning guilty, number one. Number two, they felt bad about what was going to happen to Elizabeth Holmes, so they bounced off, right? So they actually feel like maybe the jury's leaning, jury's leaning toward guilty, which is why they didn't want to be a part of it because they were thinking she was actually guilty. So who knows? Different ways of thinking about the same right. thing, which I always think is interesting. From our perspective, as a defense lawyer in a, in a trial, one juror doesn't agree with the guilty verdict, it's hung. You're doing that trial all over again. So, you know, as a defense lawyer, you would want to keep any juror that's having doubts about whether or not they can uh, go along or, you know, go against the flow of the jury. Because no matter how you look at that, you win that case. You may not get a not guilty, but you'll get a hung, a hung jury, which is not a conviction. Sam Gallo has a question here. Would it not be an advantage to the prosecution to try having Balwani and Holmes testify against each other? Okay. 
because she's already switching the blame on him. We talked about this in the Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell case as well. Husband and wife both accused and charged with murder and conspiracy to commit murder. Is it a positive or a negative to have two defendants pointing the finger at each other? Well, normally it's not good to have both defendants, for example, in this case, doing this, pointing the finger at each other. Because Why? It, it, well, first of all, it causes a major issue because now you have inconsistent defenses, which is why these cases get bifurcated and, and separated from each other. The second thing is now you've got reasonable doubt going in both directions. If they were being tried together, Balwani says it's all Holmes' fault. Holmes says it's all Balwani's fault. It's harder for a jury to come to a conclusion. So what they do is they separate the trials. The only person's guilt who's at question here is Elizabeth Holmes. Uh, in the other trial, the only person's guilt that will be considered is Sonny Balwani. Uh, but I will share with you, let's continue this discussion a little further. Yeah, the government always wants to have co-defendants testify against each other. That's frankly the name of the game. I'm surprised if they don't reach out to Sonny Balwani's camp, offer him some sweetheart deal if the government believes that things are not going well against Elizabeth Holmes to come testify against her. And that happens all the time. Right. And because they have to prove each count against each defendant beyond a reasonable doubt, sometimes the defendant saying it was all him or it was all her can create a reasonable doubt for both of them. But right now they're trying to say they were in the prosecutors are trying to say they were in this together. And that's why they're bifurcating and trying them like this. But I thought it was an interesting thought. Uh, let's see here. So, Stefan, isn't the motive of Holmes an important aspect to consider in this trial? Why would she willingly sell useless machines if it is becoming evident very easily that the machines are crap? Yeah, motive, I think, is the key to this whole thing. From your perspective, what is her motive? Well, there's two motives. A, money. Or B, if I can keep this thing moving long enough, chances are we can make the machine work and we will eventually be able to keep our promise. That's the government's perspective, that she either did it for the money or did it because she was hoping that it eventually would work. But in that hoping it would eventually work, she misrepresented what the truth was. Yeah, I think that's the big deal. It's just either way, she was doing this for money, fame, to climb the ladder, and she was faking it till she made it, just like you've been saying this whole time. And I think that's the problem here, right? And that's why they're saying... The defense is saying that's not really her motive. Her motive was to try to help people. And she's still trying to do that. And she's trying to perfect the machine. And, you know, that's kind of something that they're going to have to uh, decide. So let's see what else we got here. Vida. speaking of motive and intent, doesn't the fact that people's lives were at stake make this bad enough, I think is what she's asking. How does it change the scenario? When we're talking about fraud, we're talking about money, but people's health and safety were at risk here. How does that come into play in a trial like this? You know, that's a hard in a case like this because it's a fraud trial. It's a misrepresentation trial. It is not a personal injury trial or a trial where you're alleging either you know, murder or that you did harm to somebody. And I think the government purposely did not go down this rabbit hole because I don't know if you'll be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt if, if anybody was actually hurt um, in this case. Did somebody actually die because the result they got from their Edison machine, they just followed up with yeah. Did people use their Edison machine results and, and modify their, their medications or maybe do things, make decisions that weren't, you know, with pr appropriate information? Yes. But the government would have to prove that somebody actually was injured and hurt because of this. And that's, I think, a road they don't want to go down. It's much easier to prove fraud and money stealing than it is to prove um, injury to somebody in a case like this. So Tony Wise asked a couple questions, very good questions. We answered a few of them in the beginning of the video, including this one. How do we think it'll impact the fake until you make it culture in Silicon Valley? But I wanted to put this up there as well as this uh, Lucy Pearl's tops. It's great to have an idea that may change the world, but putting it into practice is a whole other thing. She's in way over her head. How do you think, or is there any worry 
about this case stifling groundbreaking inventions, right? Because we have to worry about that. We want to promote and encourage people, the smartest people in the world, to create things that are going to make the world a better place. And sometimes that takes risk. A lot of times that takes a lot of money. So how can a case like this affect that going forward? Depending on how this case comes out, I think it's going to be instrumental in the way that Silicon Valley and venture capital generally functions for, from now on in this country. And I think what you're going to see is the requirement, if, if Elizabeth Holmes is convicted, the venture capital people are going to say, we need to have exact specific affidavits that you know this is what your product does now, as opposed to what we want the product to be able to do in the future, because that's where the venture capital money comes in. Someone's got a great idea. They've, they've got a startup. They think they can make this work, but they need the money. So they go to these humongous uh, investment banks and get huge in, you know, injections of capital into their company that gives them the ability to hire the scientists, whoever they need, to make the thing fully functional. Um, I think fake it till you make it's the way that this has been. And I think everybody knows it uh, up to now. We all know that the you know that this high tech stuff doesn't work right day one, which is why you need this money. But at least you've got a concept that there is we're working towards something as opposed to we've got it. It works. Now we need your money to grow scale, which is really what the, uh, the Theranos issue was. All right. We've got about 10 ish minutes left. Unless we have a ton of questions, we'll keep going for a little bit longer. Um, but now it's time to get your questions in and make sure you like the video. If you're here and you like this content, I assume that's why you're here for the live. So hit the like and subscribe and, and follow along with us and make sure you get in the comments. If you have questions, Richard Wallace, can looks, demeanor, and likableness really have such a softening effect on the jury? From a lawyer's perspective, what do we think about that? Huge. The perceptions of the jury about the defendant are huge. And there have been cases, and I remember uh, being in a trial with somebody, and at one point, one of the jurors raises their hand, the bailiff goes over, it's a federal trial, talks to the jury, and the, goes up to the judge. And what the juror was saying is, can the defense lawyer or the prosecutor please move from where they're standing because I can't see the, the, the defendant? Not guilty verdict. Why? Because that juror was infatuated with this particular defendant for one reason or another and ascribed to that person. I'm going to tell you, likability, your looks, your whole persona is enormously valuable in front of a jury. A lot of times we do these mock juries or we do these test cases and a lot of it has to do with how do you feel about the plaintiff if it's a wrongful death case or something like that or a car accident? How do you feel about the plaintiff? What is it that you like or don't like about the way they sit, the way they act, how they're moving around? Because all that stuff is so important. And we as lawyers, as trial lawyers, have to worry about what the jury is going to care about. Now, they, it shouldn't matter, right? It shouldn't matter what you look like, if you look professional or not. Um, how rich, poor, whatever, but we are up against a jury and we have to fight for our client to get the best result. And that jury is the one making that determination. And remember human, the human element, you can't take that out of this process because you've got 12, in this case, jurors in a federal case that you have to either convince if you're the government or put a reasonable doubt in their mind if you're the defense. And you gotta, you can't ignore the human factors because that's really what decisions get made on. All right. Sapphire asked, would we represent Elizabeth Holmes as a firm? I mean, would we? Sure. Uh, the truth yeah, is, absolutely. We are lawyers. We represent our client's interests. We don't ascribe to, you know, you know, we don't, I never support doing something illegal, but in this country, everyone has a right to a defense. Everyone has a right to, you know, to a lawyer to help them weigh the process. And that's what we do. Yeah. I mean, for us to say that we wouldn't take a, a financial fraud case then we wouldn't be criminal defense lawyers, right? And I, I think that's kind of what it comes down to is whether we don't agree with any of the crimes that any of our clients are charged with. Um, but if there is a defense, you know, we're going to put it on and we're going to represent our clients. I think you may have answered this already from Della Johnson. If she's convicted, what time could she serve? Yeah, uh, the statutory max, I think is 20 years and I'll bet you she's going to serve, she could potentially serve every bit of that. A lot of people asking for our predictions of whether or not we think she's going to get convicted. We're going to hold that um, until a little later in the case. We got two months left. We're not going to jump the gun yet. 
All right. Again, what do you think? Is she guilty? What are the chances of her being found guilty? We're not going to answer that one just yet. And Owen, can I add something about that? Just so everybody knows, I'm not physically in the courtroom watching this thing. So I'm tr I'm getting information from various places. I'm trying to put it together for everybody to give you an idea about what's going on. But it's hard for us to gauge if, you know, I think she's good or I think she's not because we're, we're not seeing the whole picture of what the jury is saying. In fact, we're seeing more than what the jury is saying. So we're tainted right off the bat because we know more than the 12 people sitting in that jury box. All right. Uh, test cases show good looking people get off more than ordinary people. I don't know if that's necessarily the, the fact that it's just good looking. A lot of times it's relatability. But I will tell you that uh, the government does have like a 98% conviction rate. Exactly. And we talk about that. When people tell us to guess, if we were betting men and we're going to put money down, the good money is on a conviction in a federal criminal case. Said the same thing throughout the R. Kelly trial where a lot of people were saying, oh, no, he's going to be not guilty. Said, I don't know, maybe. But if I was a betting man, I'd say guilty. And he was. So I don't know if you know this, Pete, because again, like you just said, we're not there. But Tony Y asks, what's your opinion on how the judge is managing the trial? But instead of the trial, I think you have more of an indication how the judge is managing the case as a whole, because some stuff's coming in at trial, some stuff's not. There's been some motion hearings. Um, do you Have you gotten a feel about how the judge is handling the case? Yeah, I think the judge is being very conservative, which is what you would expect for a federal judge. Uh, this is in, in federal court, understand judges have been judges for a long time. Uh, it's not like this is his first trial, the first time he's ever seen a case. He's been doing it for years, and he probably practiced law for many years before being appointed to the federal bench. I think he's made a lot of decisions, and I'll tell you what I think is good for him, and it shows, uh, I think, strength as a judge. A lot of the things that are coming down the pipe were actually sealed for a very long time, so the judge had already made decisions and had indicated, let's see how the, you know, how the testimony works itself out, and I'll, I'll make a call about a specific topic. And when the judge has determined that he's made the decision because of something that came up in the trial, he'll release a previously uh, filed motion and, and issue an order. I think the judge is giving Elizabeth Holmes as fair of a shake as anybody. All right. So fungi, fungi again. If you believe in your client's guilt, do you still defend them? So I'm going to take a second here to plug another video we did with all four lawyers last week where we dove into this deep talking about if a client tells us they're guilty, what we have to do legally, because we can't perpetuate a fraud on the court. We don't lie. We don't say something that's not true. We don't allow them to take a stand and say something that's not true. Uh, but we go into how we handle cases differently, whether the client said, I absolutely did not do this, like Elizabeth Holmes, who's saying I didn't do it. Um, and you put on that defense, or if they say I did do it, whether or not you work towards a deal you think is fair, or what types of defenses you can provide. So that question was answered more in depth in a video on our page. Lawyer, you know, go check it out and subscribe and, and take a look at that video. It's got a picture of all four of the lawyers at our firm on it, I believe. All right, let's see. John Tapp, it feels like the defense teams trying to poke holes and blame co-defendants. Damage control. Talk about that type of a defense as a criminal defense lawyer. And John, I think you're absolutely right. What defense lawyers do in some cases, I think this is one of them, is you're trying to produce reasonable doubt in the minds of the jurors. So what they're doing is they're taking every advantage to point the finger of guilt somewhere other than Elizabeth Holmes, whether that person be Balwani, whether that person be one of the defense, excuse me, one of the prosecution's witnesses, that's the game plan at this point. Explain this real quick for Preeti. Um, 20 years for one count, for all counts, and then also talk about consecutive versus cons concurrent if she is convicted of all these counts. Let's, let me define the terms you said first. Consecutive sentences, meaning if, let's just say you're convicted of 20 years, uh, four 20-year counts, and they're consecutive, it's 20 years, then another 20 years, then another 20 years, then another 20 years. Concurrent sentences are when you have four convictions of 20 years, but you serve all of those sentences in the same time period. That's the distinction. Federal courts have a grouping um, calculation that gets done, again, in the federal sentencing guidelines. Like counts are normally grouped together. Most likely fraud counts and counts like this are all grouped, so you would not see consecutively sentenced counts. You will see 
concurrent sentences for all counts. And talk about how, I'm sorry, did you already say whether it was just for one of the counts or for her, each of the counts? Yeah, for she has to be convicted. If she's convicted, the jury has to find guilt on every instant individual count that she's been charged with. Uh, and then whatever those counts are, they, the federal sentencing guidelines will group them together in some instances so that they will be sentenced concurrently as opposed to consecutively. These are going to be concurrent counts. Each count has its own sentence attached yeah. to it. Right. Right. Okay. But they're served together if they're consecutive, if they're concurrent. Right, right, right. But I think I think she's just asking, like, possibility-wise, it's not 20 for everything she's charged with. True. It's multiple sentences mm -hmm. on top of each count. Yes. All right. Let's see here. All right. We've got five more minutes-ish here. I'm scrolling through the bottom, see if there was any... Other questions? Okay, Susan Barron, why didn't she take the case before this one for abuse by boyfriend? Was there any indications ever? Is there anything in the past that she filed anything against Balwani prior to getting charged criminally? You know, that's a great question. I don't know if there's any injunctions between her and Balwani. I, I just don't know. It's not something I've looked at. Um, I think that would be a great bit of evidence to have if you're going to raise a battered spouse or battered, you know, significant other. But I think what the experts can testify to is normally when you have a battered significant other, they don't report that person because the stronghold from the battering spouse is so strong that it precludes the victim of the, of the two from actually looking and seeking help. All right. Are we almost to deliberation yet? Take a second here, Pete. Now talk about what's left in the trial um, how this trial goes, right? Right now we're in the prosecution's case in chief. Right. Give a little timeline of how the trial goes. Um, and we've got a ways before deliberation. I think they've said, they've estimated the trial is going to be 13 weeks long. So that's, uh, you know, let's just say 13 weeks, four weeks per month. Uh, you know, you're talking about three-month trial here. The way it begins is they do the jury selection. They've done that. The government's burden uh, is to prove guilt, so they go first. So they're going to put all their witnesses on to uh, to prove guilt the best they can. Once the government rests, there will be some motions that the defendant will raise to basically say that the government has not met their burden of proof on all the individual accounts, and the judge is going to have to make a decision, either striking some counts or deferring ruling until later. Then the defense has the right to put on a case in chief. Once that case in chief is done then the government has the right to put on rebuttal witnesses to refute things that may have come out in uh, Elizabeth Holmes' case. Once that's done, closing arguments happen after the, there's a meeting between the, uh, the lawyers, the judge, it's called a charge conference. What jury instructions were going to give the jury? The jury instructions are given, closing arguments happen, and then the jury goes and deliberates. And truth be told, there's no timeline for them. They can deliberate for as short or as long as they want to. So here's a good question from John Tatt. How do you cross-examine an expert fraud examiner in a case like this as a defense attorney? And we usually just call them like FBI investigators that do this type of work, right? So when they're looking into all of this fraud, what are some of the things that we do when we cross-examine experts? Yeah, you're going to focus on their bias. You're going to focus on their competence because normally, and not to take anything away from, you know, a federal agent or a specific, you know, uh, examiner or analyst, but normally you're not talking about people that are extremely well-versed as expert witnesses, they're law enforcement. So you'll try to poke holes on, you know, the extent of their experience, education, and the things that they've done. You will try to, uh, try to find places where they could have done investigation where they didn't. So meaning you looked at all these records, you came to a conclusion, yes. Did you look at all of these records? No, I didn't. Well, would it affect your opinion if you saw this document or that document? And they tried to poke holes in the uh, the effectiveness in the evaluations that those experts have done. Yeah, I also think a lot of times you're talking about experts like this. You can use your theories of defense with these experts like you don't know what was happening with Balwani when they were at home. You don't know what he was saying to her in person. You don't know the abuse that occurred. That could have affected what you investigated, kind of taking it off their expertise to show 
they're not really testifying about what your defense is with some of these experts. That's sometimes a good thing to do as well. Um, all right. I think we are about done with the questions. We're going to finish with this one because it's always interesting. People talk OJ and if people are acquitted um, and then go write a tell-all book at the end, if I did it, things like that. Why is that possible? And how does it affect a defendant's guilt if they are found not guilty? And then they go write a book that basically says, I did it, or if I did it, here's how I would have done it. Can they get tried again? The answer to that question is no, not in federal court. You can't be tried again. Once you've had your day in court, if you get a not guilty, it's over. They cannot retry you for that. In criminal. Criminal charge, right. right. Now let's talk about a second problem. If there is a possibility for the state to charge her, and the statute of limitations has a run, she can be charged and and tried again in a different sovereignty, meaning a different state. Um, normally, the only time you see the tell-all books is when you've gotten a not guilty and the statutes have run, so no one's going to come look at a prosecutor. But there's a part two to this. If you lose, the law says you cannot profit from your misdeeds. So you can't write a book uh, as a tell-all after you've been convicted and profit from it. Yeah, there's all sorts of interesting things that can happen. So we're going to keep following this case and eventually we'll get to what we think is going to happen, but probably not till later on. Pete will still do the weekly updates. Keep us posted on any questions that you have or if there are any upcoming cases you want us to start digging into. Make sure you subscribe to the page and like this video if you like the Elizabeth Holmes stuff. But for today, that's all we've got an hour plus of answering questions and updating on what's happening with Elizabeth Holmes. Until next time, we'll be with you.